been in a series called Signs, if you've been with us, whether it's in person, online, or maybe if it's your first time here, uh, just so you know, we're in this series called Signs. And the series is based around uh, John's gospel account. So in John's account, he does certain things that are a little bit different than everybody else. The other three gospels, so that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what's called the synoptic gospels. So they all have kind of a similarity to them. And then this gospel, John, is unique. It's written in a different perspective than the others, though there's some overlapping stories. But one of the things that's unique about it is how the stories are structured in such a way to point us to a purpose. And for John, that purpose was that we, after reading his gospel, would have no doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. And that knowing who Jesus is, who he says he is, can make a real difference in our lives. And so in John's gospel, he has this kind of layout where he has seven signs, which are seven miracles that Jesus does that points him to being who we're going to celebrate on Easter, to being who he said he was, like I said. And so right now we're in the, I think we're in the fourth sign that we're in. We're having some sound issues. Thanks, Julian, for fixing things. Um, we're in the fourth sign. And so as we've seen through the signs that what have happened are, are different things. So it can go from Jesus doing a miracle of turning water into wine. He can heal somebody from a distance. And we get into this sign, which is telling us something different about Jesus than the other ones that we've looked at. And so we're going to be in John chapter 5. And this happens after Jesus has healed the royal official's son. So what happened, if you were here last week, we talked about this, or if you watched online, or if you're familiar with the story, is that from a distance, so a royal official comes to Jesus and says, hey, can you heal my son? And through faith, he's healed. He finds out that Jesus did it even from a distance. And so they believed even without seeing what happened, what was going to happen. So we get to John chapter 5. And John 5 starts like this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now this setting is really important. This setting is really important because there's something going on here in this setting. And for a long time, people discredited this story because they didn't believe this was a real place. And in fact, it wasn't until about 1890 when they discovered the pools, which you can see in this picture here, uh, of Bethesda. And these pools were buried underground because that's what happens with time. And they were excavated and archaeologists discovered, like, this is what they were talking about. And this pool is what's called a mikvah. And in Jewish tradition, what a mikvah was, was a pool for cleansing. And so it usually have two parts to the pool, one that was somewhat stagnant and one that was a moving center of water. And the idea is that you would walk through this pool to be cleansed. Now this pool had this purpose so people would come through it to be cleansed, to make sure they are free from guilt of sin, to make sure they are okay for things that they wanted to be okay with and make sure they could worship God. And so this is the setting that they're in. And this particular pool, it tells us that there are 
people who had various ailments who would hang out there. And they would hang out there all the time. And the text continues. It says, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which seems like a really strange question to ask. I think that's fair to say. So there's this individual who's been essentially paralyzed, unable to move for 38 years. Can any of you remember 38 years ago? Some of you weren't born. And so it would be really hard to remember. I was, I was kind of little, so it wouldn't really work. But if you think about 38 years, so 38 years is quite a while. Think about who you were 38 years ago. Imagine you had an accident, and this accident left you paralyzed. You couldn't do anything. This would be horrible. And I would imagine if you were in such a situation, you would say, yeah, I'd really love not to have this ailment. I'd really love not to be paralyzed. So Jesus sees this individual, and in the translation that we have, it says he learned, but the word actually says he knew that this individual had been an invalid, he'd been disabled for 38 years, and he asks him, do you want to get well? And the text continues. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Once the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. Now, this story is, there's a piece of information that kind of gets left out, and some versions will have it, and some it doesn't. There's a history to this pool. There's a superstition to this pool. And the superstition is that at some point, an angel will come down and stir the waters, And the first one into the pool, when the waters are stirred, will get healed. And so this individual has been waiting for the moment for the water to be stirred so they could get in. But they say, you know what? I can't get myself in and no one's helping me because they're all trying to heal themselves. So he's relying on the superstition and maybe in hopes of someone pushing them into the pool just in time. And he says, no one's there to help me. I can't do it. And Jesus says, we'll get up and walk. This person imagining for 38 years has been waiting for this moment has probably given up a little bit of hope. I know I was sick for a week and I was like, oh my goodness, like Jesus, heal me now. (laughs) For 38 years, you're waiting, you're hoping, you're desiring for something to be different. It doesn't have to be 38 years. It could be a week. It could be a month. It could be months. It doesn't have to be a physical ailment. It could be your marriage. It could be your friendships. It could be your work situation. It could be just the state of your soul right now. And you're waiting and you're wondering, Jesus, will you heal me? And you wait and you wait and it seems like nothing is happening. And so you give up. I'd imagine when Jesus says, do you want to be well? And the man's response is excuses is because he doesn't think anything can change. Because you've had it for so long. It doesn't seem possible. You've struggled for so long with your mental health that it doesn't seem like you could ever experience joy. You've struggled so long in your marriage that you don't imagine it ever being happy again. You've struggled with your singleness. You've struggled with your work experience, with trying to get through high school or university. And you struggle with your kids, young or old. And you wonder, will it ever get better? 
And all you can think of is excuses why it won't. No one will help me. Haven't met the right person. It's their fault. Just like this man, we could find ourselves waiting and wanting something to be different, but we could easily just make excuses and say, well, it's just not going to happen. But then Jesus steps in. Jesus wants nothing to do with his excuses. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And then verse 10 happens. In verse 10, it says this, uh, 9 and 10, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So a general instruction for a Jewish person was that the Sabbath, which would be Saturday in their context, was a time in which you were to rest, to put away all work, and you were to be present with God in your restfulness. And in this presence with God and your restfulness, you were to do almost nothing. And this was a debate for many years about what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? What does it look like for someone? And you might ask yourself that too. Like, what does it look like for me to rest? And so people made up rules. In fact, there's this wonderful document called the Mishnah, which is how rabbis would study what God says. So in Exodus, God says, keep the Sabbath. Remember your God who created everything on the seventh day rested. And then Moses in Deuteronomy reminds the people, keep your Sabbath. Remember how God rescued us from, from the wilderness. He rescued us from slavery. And so there's this idea that we remember God, so we keep the Sabbath. We don't overburden ourselves. And so people decide, okay, what does it look like to rest? And so this book, the Mishnah, comes up with something. In the book on the Sabbath, it says there are 40 minus 1 things you can do. It's kind of like when you go shopping and it's $39.99 and you're like, that's not $40. And you feel really good about it. This is how they word things. It's not 40, it's 39. You'll be okay. And they say, well, what the 39, uh, the 40 minus 1 things you cannot do to make sure you're keeping the Sabbath. You cannot do any sewing or plowing or reaping or binding sheaves or threshing or winnowing or selecting or grinding or sifting or kneading and baking. You cannot shear wool. You can't do any bleaching, hackling, dyeing, spinning, stretching the threads, the making of two meshes, weaving two threads, dividing two threads, tying or knotting or untying. You can't sew two stitches, but one is okay. That's not work. And tearing in order to sew two stitches. You cannot capture a deer. You cannot do any slaughtering or flailing or salting it, curing its hide, scraping it of its hair, cutting it up. Writing two letters, you can write one letter, and erasing in order to write two letters over that erasure. You can't do any erasing. Building, pulling down, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, and carrying out from one domain to another. There's your 39 things you can't do. We talked about how signs are kind of like to tell us what to do and what not to do. Now imagine all those 39 things on like a stop sign, saying if you want to do what God wants... You can't sew. You can't bake. You can't kill a deer. And some of you are like, yeah, that's cool. Don't worry. Wasn't planning on it. But you just can't. You can't, you can't, you can't. And so what happens is that Jesus, in this moment, walking along, sees a man. A man who has been waiting 38 years. Waiting so long that everything seems hopeless and all he could find are excuses as to why he's still disabled. We don't know why 
this man is disabled. We don't know what happened, but all he can find is an excuse. Well, no one's going to help me. I can't get in the pool, the superstition, all this stuff. And Jesus on this day says, you know what? Why don't you get up and walk? And so he's walking and he's carrying his mat, which you cannot do on the Sabbath. And it starts a problem. The text continues. So as the Jewish leaders say, is Sabbath the law forbids you to carry your mat? And he says, but replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea for who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So Jesus is encountering him. He heals him. He slips away. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. There's a line there that many of us will kind of get stumped on because it will make us wonder some things. Stop sinning or something worse will happen. And what can happen is we can associate that and saying, okay, it means that when we're sick, it's because of sin. And while there might be some instances, that's generally not the teaching of Scripture. What he's basically saying is, don't keep sinning. Every story in John's Gospel that has a healing or has an interaction, Jesus usually says, go and sin no more. It's the same exact language here. He says, you've been healed. Stop living the lie. Stop embracing the wrong. How many of us have desired for miracles from God and God does something in our lives, he shows up in some miraculous way, and how quickly we forget what God did. And we keep on going in patterns that maybe weren't healthy. He says, stop sinning. It's one thing for God to show up, it's another thing for us to be faithful afterwards. So this man who waited 38 years for this moment is given this instruction, don't go back to the way things were. That's the continuous request of Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, don't go back to the way things were because they're not as good as they could be with Jesus. Stop sinning. So how do you respond to miracles in your life? What happens to you when there's an event, when there's an occurrence, when there's something where you experience God in some way? Do you just go back to what was? Or does something change in your attitude, in your actions, in your outlook? The text continues in John 5, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. These Jewish leaders see a miracle happen. Chances are they have walked the same path Jesus walked, and saw the same man waiting to be healed. Chances are they knew this man. 
Just a speculation, but I'm guessing it's true. If you'd been waiting 38 years, there's a good chance you'd see them every time you go. And then they see him walking. And what they don't see is the miracle. They see that he's not doing what they want him to do, which is not carry a mat. And then they see Jesus. And then they hear Jesus speak. The guy who healed the man. And what do they do? They hate him. Why? Because he's making himself out to be God. Not just did he heal, but he calls God his father. They can't handle it. Their concept of what it means to be a follower of God is being completely broken. They have this set of 40 minus 1 rules about what you can do and say, if you fit into this category, you're good. So how is this guy healed when he's breaking the law? How is this guy healing when he's saying something as audacious, as heretical, as that he and his father are related? They can't understand how God could be working different than their expectation of God their understanding of what is and what was. And not only do they miss out on the miracle, they grow in bitterness. And as we watch the story unfold, it leads them down a path that leads to death for Jesus, but also for them, because they never experienced the life they could if they trusted who Jesus was. Sometimes when we think about who God is, when we think about who Jesus is, we tend to do just what they did. We put God into this category, into these categories or boxes, and say, like, this is how God does what God does. And so anything outside of that can't be God. And then we wrestle with, why is God not doing it the way I want him to do it? Sometimes we pray and we ask and we desire from God. And maybe we've pleaded for a long time, but then the answer doesn't look like what we thought it would. How do we respond? Maybe we've prayed for a long time for a situation that we're in. Maybe it hasn't been 38 years of desiring healing, but maybe it's been a week or two or months. Maybe you're praying for that job change that you want. Maybe you're praying for your kids and worried about how they're doing and what they're growing up like. Or maybe you're praying for your parents as they've been aging and you're concerned for them or for your relationships and you're not sure how it's going to turn out. But in your mind, if it just looks like this, that means God answered my prayer. But what if God's answer to prayer is completely outside of that idea? What if God's answer to prayer is so much more than you could imagine? What if God's answer to prayer is breaking the 40 minus 1 rules that you put up to say this is how God works? What if God is doing a miracle and you're missing out because it doesn't fit the category that you wanted? How do you expect God to work in your life? What are you looking for him to do? I want you to ask yourself a question. This is the question I want you to ask. Have I limited Jesus? Have I 
chosen to only see God work in the way I want him to? Have I only allowed God to be God when it works in my favor? Or it looks like what I want it to look like? Have I limited Jesus by my expectations of him? The expectation of the religious leaders at this point in time would be that, well, Jesus wouldn't tell a man if he was from God, he wouldn't tell another man to pick up his mat and walk because that's breaking the rules. But God breaks beyond those rules. And he does something amazing. Are you limiting Jesus with your expectations? And then what do you do? Maybe you are being asked by Jesus what this man was being asked. Maybe you do have something you've been waiting for. And he says, do you want it? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be restored? Do you want things to be made right? Do you want to deal with those thoughts you've been struggling with? Do you want to have hope again? And you might be thinking the answer would be yes, it's so easy. But maybe you've been making excuses because it's been so long. You don't know what it could be. So what do you do? Well, you have to stop limiting Jesus. And here's what I want to suggest. The first thing you do is you have to be honest. When the man is asked by Jesus, do you want to be well, what does he do? He makes excuses. Maybe you don't sense God talking to you personally, and I really pray that you will in time, that you have moments where it seems clear that God is speaking, whether it's through someone else or through Scripture or even through a voice. But what if someone asked you, hey, do you want to be well? Do you want things to be different? What would you do? Would you make excuses? Say, well, they can't be different. You know, it's always going to be the same thing. It's always the same thing. They're never going to change, so why would I bother? Well, be honest. Do you really want it different? Are you just comfortable with the way things are? Is it easier to make an excuse than to imagine how it could be better? So be honest. And then you have to trust. You have to trust in the midst of the uncertainty of how things are. Maybe you've been praying for, for a breakthrough in your own life of just trying to deal with some struggles that you have. You have to trust that even in the uncertainty and even in the reality that it's not so easy right now, that Jesus is faithful, that Jesus is there, and Jesus wants you to have life in all of its fullness. Trust him. Trust that he will do what he says. Now, the interesting thing about this man who's by the pool is that he probably knew that if he was walking with his mat, somebody would say something. He knew the rules. He knew nobody would touch him because he was unclean. So even when he made his excuses about why nobody's helping me, he knew no one would help him anyway. He knew the rules, but he trusted as he's healed, get up and walk. When you have an experience that seems to go against everything you expected, you have to trust, no matter how hard it is. Then you need to obey, which is a word that so many of us hate. I hate this word because it just feels so strange to say it. But you have to obey through your doubts. When God speaks, when God acts, when he asks us to trust him, we follow him. That's what obeying means. 
If Jesus says, hey, this is what it looks like, go and sin no more, you go and sin no more to the best of your ability. You choose to turn away from what was. So many of us have these moments, these encounters with God, where God does something miraculous, and maybe we don't even express it as God doing it. Maybe we don't realize how good God is being to us. But we don't follow through in the next steps of continuously living in that life. If you know something is sin, go and sin no more, is Jesus' instruction. Trust, obey. And finally, you have to unshackle God from your expectations, from your understanding of how he's going to work. This is what the religious leaders did. God only works within this context of 40 minus 1 rules for, for Sabbath, so he wouldn't be healing now. Stop trying to make God fit into what you want him to fit into. Stop trying to make him do that miracle, but only the way you expect it to work. Jesus demonstrates that he has power to step into reality and make it miraculous through this healing. And he still has that same power in our lives. What is it that you've been praying for, wanting for, hoping for? Are you being honest about it? Are you trusting him with it? Are you willing to follow through? And even if it doesn't look like what you expected, believe in the miracle that he's giving you. The signs are there but you need to be open to them, even if they're different than what you expect. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are um, a God beyond my own understanding. I thank you that in my limitedness, I get to see glimpses of you and know you through Jesus, that we all can come to know hope and life in its fullness through you, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can move forward and see so much more than we ever expected. God, I don't know where each of us is today, but I imagine that there are many different things on our hearts that we've been praying about, that we've been hoping for, that we've been wanting to be different, and they just aren't. And we make excuses, and we give reasons for why it's not different. But I believe, I know, that you are a God that can still act in those situations. And we need to open our hearts and our minds to what you may have. That there is something so much better than how we plan things. So much better than what we imagine. What in our limitedness we can think of. And God, I pray that we just come to know you more and more and trust you, and follow you, and stop trying to make you to be someone you're not, and embrace the love you have for us, for all of us, wherever we find ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.